0: Welcome to The Beginner's Guide to all things economic, political, and sociocultural. Here we will be sharing quick bites into all the topics, concepts, and theories that we all talk about but should probably know a little bit more about. I'll be doing my best to keep it all unbiased, to the point, and hopefully interesting enough to inspire you to dig a little deeper on your own. With that being said, I'm your host, Emmy Davis, and this is The Beginner's Guide to the President. Commander-in-Chief Leader of the free world. President. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. A role that may just be the most coveted job on the planet. A role that was nearly not included in the foundational government of the United States. The original articles established a Congress and a Supreme Court, but no executive office. The debates prior to writing the Constitution included heated disagreements over the powers and makeup of an executive office. One of their biggest fears was creating a position that had the potential to outweigh the rest of the branches. Others actually tried to crown George Washington as a king, but he refused and chose to serve through presidency instead. The final draft of the Constitution lists only three qualifications for the presidency. The president must be at least 35 years old, they must be a natural born citizen, and they must have lived in the United States for at least 14 years. Originally, there was no term limit. Despite major support to stay in office, George Washington famously refused to serve as president for longer than two terms. Because of this, nearly every president followed his lead by only serving two terms. At least until 1951, when the 22nd Amendment was ratified to dictate that two terms were the official limit. Fun little fact here. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected four terms in a row and served as president from 1932 until his death in 1945. Overall, the original role outlined for the president was much more narrow than the role of Congress. The president cannot make laws, interpret laws, declare war, decide how federal money will be spent, nor choose any cabinet members or Supreme Court justices without the Senate's approval. Of course, there's a list of things a president can do. Once a bill has successfully passed through the other two branches, the president may approve it and sign it into law. Alternatively, the president may choose to veto the bills that have successfully gone through Congress. The president has direct authority over the CIA and the EPA. Additionally, they can also issue pardons and clemencies for federal crimes and conduct diplomacy with other nations. The president's cabinet carries out day-to-day administrative duties of the federal government. As I mentioned earlier, the president chooses his cabinet to be approved by the Senate. Beyond his or her cabinet, the president is responsible for the appointment of the heads of over 50 federal commissions, ambassadors, and other federal offices. A few examples are the Federal Reserve Board, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the ambassador to the United Nations. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion or bring justice to our enemies, justice will be done. Most of today's presidential powers were added during times of war, and have managed to stick around. While all additions of governmental power is impactful, I've chosen two recent examples for you. The first example takes us back to World War II. In order to streamline the war effort, FDR increased his authority to recognize both major aspects of the executive branch and the previously independent government agencies. He also granted the authority to censor mail and open previously confidential information about citizens that was gathered from the census. You could also look at FDR's New Deal programs as a vast expansion of the office's power in the name of the post-war rebuilding. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. While it was packaged to try and improve consumer confidence and support workers, it reinforced his ability to regulate the economy in a way he could not before. Which is a good thing to remember. Governmental powers have been expanded time and time again in the name of rebuilding, repairing, and recouping. Now, the second example i wanted to bring up is one that is still hotly debated on whether or not it should be repealed the patriot act just over a month following the tragedy of september 11th the patriot act was signed into law by president george w bush after passing through the house with a vote of 357 to 66 and the senate with a vote of 98 to 1. the official name is uniting and strengthening america by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. This department person said yesterday, we have files. The intelligence people have files that we are ready to they are ready to hand over to the criminal people. What that means is they can take that and suddenly they have a lot of new leads. The three main provisions of the act are one the expansion of surveillance abilities of law enforcement, including by tapping domestic and international phones. Two easing interagency communication to allow federal agencies to more effectively use all available resources in counterterrorism efforts. 3. The increasing of penalties for terrorism crimes and the expansion of the list of activities which would qualify for terrorism charges. Most of the tools and legal protections provided by the Patriot Act are still in play today. The main point of contention falls to the fact that who it applies to is left quite ambiguous, meaning they can essentially apply them to any citizen at any time. The original arguments that allowed any expansions of power to pass at all were tied to the eras that they were enacted. To be fair, there are a number of benefits to some of the powers added since the original job description was drafted. But, if we were to revisit some of them today, there's a strong chance that a good number of them would no longer be, quote, necessary for the president or the federal government to hold on to. Speaking of the original job description we need to talk about executive orders. Interestingly, there is actually no specific provision in the Constitution for them. The closest it comes to covering executive orders can be found in Article 2, Section 1, which says, The executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States of America. Sections 3 and 4 provide potential limitations on executive orders when it states that the President shall, quote, "...take care that the laws be faithfully executed." Which, I don't know about you, but that to me really only covers executive orders that are specific to the better enacting of a law and nothing more. When it comes to dealing with executive orders, only the president or incumbent president has the power to easily revoke them. Congress has the potential to revoke them, but they have to pass legislation that specifically invalidates it in order to do so. Not surprisingly, executive orders have grown in popularity. Let's compare the first 50 years of the presidency to the most recent 50 years. There were eight different presidents during those first 50 years, and between them all, they issued a whopping 40 executive orders. Now let's compare that to the most recent 50 years, which consisted of seven different presidents and a total of 1,793 executive orders. The top three contributors were President Ronald Reagan, who issued 381, President William J. Clinton, or Bill Clinton who issued 364, and President George W. Bush, who issued 291. Needless to say, a lot has changed since the writing of the Constitution, not only for the executive branch, but for the legislature and the judicial branches as well. The questions now are, has it been for the best, and is this a pattern that should continue? In all honesty, there's probably just as many potential positives as are negatives to each expansion of governmental power. Well, maybe not just as many. Either way, it's important to be aware of and know what the original vision was. Which is one thing we can say for certain. The original vision is not what we see today. So maybe the question should be similar to where we left off last time. Knowing what the original intent for the president was, is it within our purview to remind the government of it? And is that something we want to change? If so, our topic next time might just help clarify a few things. This has been the Beginner's Guide to the President, and I'm your host, Emmy Davis. This podcast is a subject entertainment production for Free Markets Destroy, a project of Washington Policy Center. Free Markets Destroy celebrates the power of free markets to tackle humanity's most daunting challenges. The world isn't perfect, but it's getting better every day thanks to entrepreneurs who work tirelessly to deliver life-changing innovations. Washington Policy Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit public policy research organization that publishes studies, sponsors events, and educates citizens on vital public policy issues. For more information on either, check out freemarketsdestroy.com or washingtonpolicy.org. As always, thanks for listening and do your own research.